The Hamlet Podcast, episode 26. Hello and welcome to this exploration of Shakespeare's Hamlet with me, your host, Connor Hanrity. We've reached Act 1, Scene 4 of the play, and this podcast will be the first of 14 episodes that will bring us all the way to the end of this act. Technically, Scenes 4 and 5 are two separate scenes, but they happen in immediate succession and in performance, you might be forgiven for missing the scene break altogether. We're back up on the battlements, it's very late, and Hamlet has joined the other Watchers of the Night. Sadly for Bernardo, he's been axed. It's only Horatio and Marcellus who get to be in this scene, although perhaps the character is only too happy not to have to go back up to the platform where strange things appear and go bump in the night. The actor playing Bernardo is conceivably backstage changing costume in order to reappear as Reynaldo, perhaps, or any number of other roles. After the public court and private domestic scenes that have gone before, Shakespeare immediately sets the scene, rather vividly placing Hamlet outside the activities of court all over again. But first, Hamlet and Horatio discuss the weather. There's an urgency, a sort of nervousness to this, not least because it's freezing. The air bites shrewdly. It is very cold. It is a nipping and an eager air. This description of the cold is very poetic, shrewdly, nipping, eager from the old French word for bitter. They're all great ways to evoke the cold air swirling around the actors' faces. It's also just very fancy small talk. I love the image of these three braves upstairs and outside in the cold, ready to meet the ghost. What does one talk about when preparing for such a thing? The weather, obviously. And then that conversation dies down a little bit. And then Hamlet double-checks to see if they're any closer to the right time. What hour now? I think it lacks of twelve. No, it is struck. Indeed, I heard it not. This is pretty much Hamlet's equivalent of, are we there yet? Horatio isn't sure that they've passed midnight, but Hamlet is. He's nervous, understandably. These well-meaning gents have dragged him up here because they have convinced him that they saw his father's ghost in his armour, traipsing around as though he had something to say, presumably to him. Who wouldn't be a bit antsy in the anticipation of that? Horatio continues, as if to fill in the time. Then it draws near the season wherein the spirit held its wont to walk. This little bit is enough to build the tension and the anticipation, and then Shakespeare pulls another stunt. We had a few horror-worthy tricks in the first scene, and now he does it differently. It's worth bearing in mind that horror and ghosts and revenants were all par for the course in Elizabethan theatre. For instance, the wildly popular Spanish tragedy begins with a ghost and the spirit of revenge, so Shakespeare really needs to have the ghost's entrances earn their keep. It'd be too easy just to have him appear now at the beginning of the scene, So instead, with Hamlet primed and jittery, and his fellows eager to prove that they've been telling the truth, Shakespeare instead sets off, and I quote the stage directions here, a flourish of trumpets and an ordnance shot off within. Now it's Horatio who's surprised, saying, What does this mean, my lord? And Hamlet replies, The king doth wake tonight and takes his rouse, keeps wassail, and the swaggering upspring reels, And, as he drains his draughts of Rhenish down, the kettledrum and trumpet thus bray out the triumph of his pledge. Bear in mind that back in scene two, the king had promised that, 
No jocund health that Denmark drinks today, but the great cannon to the clouds shall tell, and the kings rouse the heavens all brew it again, re-speaking earthly thunder. All of this in grace of Hamlet's agreement that he will stay in Denmark and not go back to Wittenberg. It seems rather loud and showy for the king to be having cannons and trumpets, and as Hamlet elaborates on the stage directions, even kettle drums blaring out with every toast. Hamlet is quite acerbic in his description. The king is staying up late tonight, drinking heavily. He keeps wassail, as the phrase goes. It's a rather old term for the raising of toasts, and therefore quite a lot of drinking, and one infers a descent into rather drunken, ebullient exuberance. We are to imagine that the new king is by now quite sauced, and far removed from the smooth operator we saw earlier in the day. We have a slightly awkward expression in the middle of all of that, that the king, the swaggering upspring, reels. My favourite explanation for this that I've read is that it's a translation of the German word Upfauf, which was a very exuberant dance that accompanied wine-soaked merrymaking. The king, God forbid, is dancing a mad swaggering dance. And as he drains his draughts of Rhenish, German wine appropriately matching the dance, the drums and trumpets bray out just how glad he is to be in complete control of the country. Hamlet seems disgusted. Bray is such an effective word to be using here. Horatio, rather embarrassed, has never heard the like, and he asks, Is it a custom? Which is a rather gentlemanly way of asking if such carry-on is normal here in Denmark. Hamlet replies, I marry ist. But to my mind, though I am native here and to the manner born, it is a custom more honoured in the breach than the observance. This is another oft-quoted few lines from the play, in which Hamlet explains that even though he's grown up at court, and therefore is a native Dane to the manner born, in his experience this tradition is very seldom observed. It's terribly elegantly phrased, and again dripping in scorn for the boorish behaviour that's going on downstairs. And as we've met the curse earlier on in scene three, we have it again here, I marry ist. After this, Hamlet launches into an extended discussion of Danish drunkenness. Some editors believe that this section may have been cut out when King James took the throne, since it might have been offensive to his Danish wife, Queen Anne. Certainly Hamlet is showing now that he's been abroad and heard how his country is perceived by others. This heavy-headed revel, east and west, makes us traduced and taxed of other nations. The rouse, this mad drinking session, Heavy-headed is another term that Shakespeare seems to have made up, a precursor perhaps of heavy-handed, but whatever it is, it exposes the Danes to scorn and censorship all over the world, east and west. They keep us drunkards and with swinish phrase soil our addition, and indeed it takes from our achievements, though performed at height, the pith and marrow of our attribute. Hamlet's troubled by all of this. People from other countries call us drunkards and soil our reputation with the proverbial phrase as drunk as a swine. And indeed it takes from the Danes' achievements, takes from the very heart of their otherwise deserved good name. No matter how well they do, the drinking will remain the talking point. Speaking as an Irish person, obviously I know pretty much how Hamlet is feeling here. Our reputation for the demon drink hadn't quite evolved by the time of Shakespeare's play, but his description of how alcohol can mar a reputation, be it of a man or a country, is remarkably accurate. 
Hamlet's discomfort at his uncle's stepfather's wild behaviour will continue for several more lines, which will be unpacked in the next episode. And be sure to visit the website, as you know by now, thehamletpodcast.com, for extra information, new sections on the text of each completed scene, and of course links to all of the previous regular and bonus episodes. I'll speak to you next time.